Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. Welcome back, everyone. We are here to talk about the Rebuild movies, finally, by popular demand. Here we are, Human Instrumentality Podcast, season discussing... One season one point one 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 open parentheses point close parentheses <laughs> five. <laughs> so depending on how you look at it, it's either one point five or fifteen. Yes, this is the fifteenth season of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. Um, we've been going at it for quite a bit. Will this be technically our fifteenth episode? Uh, we really set ourselves up at the wrong foot having an episode zero that still counts as the first episode so who even knows we're we're gonna get into it um yeah. but before we do because this is on the list we've got a list i've always got a list ian's got a list and so does our very first special guest on the podcast my dear friend logan taylor hey joseph hi ian how are you guys Hello. <laughs> Uh, Logan, why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. So I am uh, a genre film, I hate the word connoisseur, but I can't think of a better way to kind of envelop everything at once. Slightly braggadocious, but I work in genre film in a lot of ways. I uh, am a programmer at Fantastic Fest. I'm a consultant with Blood Oath, and I'm an acquisitions manager for screen media. So anywhere along the line of a genre film, I I try to be involved and help where I can. (laughs) That's a wonderful, wonderful background. In some ways, like way more keyed into like the subject of this podcast on a professional level than Ian and I are as oh, if you think I've seen any anime but that's that's the catch and that's what's going to be interesting <laughs> <laughs> um so before we we get into it I think Ian do you mind if I just take point for one second oh yeah please I don't this should be obvious to anyone listening first that Logan has an adorable dog yipping uh, in the background sorry second <laughs> Second, that I think Ian has some allergies, and third, that I'm I'm coming down off taking a handful of mushrooms last night. So this is going to be a wild one for a wild project. <laughs> and in keeping with that wild theme, we've decided no recap this time. First time ever on a formal episode, no recap. And why is that? Well, to put it bluntly, the movie is itself a recap of the... <laughs> first six episodes of Neon Genesis Evangelion. So if you've been following along, that takes us from the beginning of the TV show to the end of the Ramiel fight right. uh, that we also compared to the Pacific Rim arc. So in a lot of ways, this movie is kind of, at least to me, feels like Hideki Anno's own version of that kind of summary of the early stages of Neon Genesis Evangelion, kind of doing it one better. Uh, his his approach to the subject instead of the Americanized uh, blockbuster version that Joseph and I talked about in that episode. Um, but since we already have three episodes of this podcast covering those episodes of the show pretty in depth, doesn't really make sense to do the same beat by beat kind of analysis or recap that we had we've already done. Like if you if you want a recap of those episodes, you can go back and listen to the episodes of the podcast and get caught up. Or you can just watch the movie 
it would actually take less time to just watch the movie than listen to those three episodes of the podcast. So choose wisely. <laughs> I'll put some links in the show notes. Um, but before we do that, can we have, a, like, would you indulge me for just a moment in, in talking about why I very specifically really wanted Logan to come Please. talk with us? Yeah, give us some context. Logan's one of my dearest friends, and we've known each other since the third grade third fourth right around there yeah in there right we grew up together very near to one another and we're very close friends in high school what's your yeah. recollection of that <laughs> well and and we we were both nerds and i said this earlier to you guys i think that's a lovely word that means passionate people right passionate knowledgeable people uh we were both major movie nerds uh growing up and kind of found that we liked really intense or extreme or, or unique or out there kind of cinema. So what I remember most about high school is just watching movies probably every weekend in your basement. Or, um, or your living room. Or my too. living room. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, through that, discovering like everything, like David Lynch, Cronenberg, Korean cinema. My God, I remember when we first, we watched Old Boy together. Yeah. It was fucking wild. That was so wild. Yeah. So, I mean, just uh, we we tried a lot of things, but I really don't think we ever tried anime. I really I don't recall doing it because I to this day have only seen maybe five or six anime films. What have you seen? I've seen most of, of the Miyazaki stuff and a couple I saw I've seen a couple things for work. So I've seen and I can't really say which ones because we may sure. or may not have played them, but a, a couple more contemporary things. I don't recall if for some reason in my mind, I think maybe we did Akira because you did. So Logan was the founder of and president of the high school film club. Still the peak of my career right there. <laughs> <laughs> My my recollection is, and I may be wrong, but I think maybe once I cajoled her into like, let me bring Akira over. Let's try it once. Did I pay attention though? That was, I think maybe we tried and like 30 minutes in, I was like, right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Akira can have that effect on people, definitely. <laughs> but you're probably right. Or por I feel like Porco Rosso, maybe we tried that. That rings a bell to me. No, you're right. Yes, that was it. Because that was when Disney started releasing the like hard to find Miyazaki's on DVD in the US for the first yeah. time. And yeah. I really, really took to Porco Rosso. And that's correct. We watched that. No, I watched Akira with our mutual friend who's not on the podcast, Emily Larson. Uh-huh. And Emily I and am. <laughs> How you doing, Em? And <laughs> she and I watched Evangelion together. Uh-huh which is sort of interesting. The movie or the series? Okay, so this is interesting. The movie, this movie, You Are Not Alone, was not made when you and I knew one another in high school. Okay. Yet. So we, our freshman year of college, this is probably a good time to talk about the production of it, right? So mm -hmm. like our freshman year of college in 2007, they announced that they would sort of like be getting the band back together. And um, Hideki Anno got almost all of the original staff who made Evangelion together to do. They announced there would be four films. 
And interestingly enough, his intention was, and I'm sure this is a lie, right? His intention was that he's like, the story got too confusing. So I want to do everything over again with more more money to do it really well, make it how I really wanted it when we were young. And I'm going to make the story make sense this time. That's like, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's, you know, obviously we talked about it a lot in the sort of final run of season one of this podcast. But there's definitely this conception that like the end of the show got out of hand and got kind of got away from the showmakers and went into a more abstract and almost video essayist style that in a lot of ways uh, pissed off a bunch of people that were expecting a more straightforward, straight ahead, big robot fight, big monster kind of production. And I think that in a lot of ways, what people expected from these movies with the way that Anno presented it in public was that now we're going to get the catharsis and the straight ahead action that was promised by the show that the show quote unquote didn't deliver on. If you've listened to the podcast, you know how Joseph and I feel about that meta narrative, which is it's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but it's an interesting project. Like the idea of, okay, we can all admit that maybe things got a bit, Lucy goosey in an unintentional way in the final run of the show what would it mean for the gang to get back together and take another crack at it like I don't think it's entirely artistically bankrupt of a of a project and we'll get into exactly how successful the team was at simplifying or clarifying or making an entertaining movie version of the show so given that you know, you know, what's interesting about having you on for this project, Logan, is is to me sort of twofold. Like, so f- for for one, the director that Hidekiano is most compared to critically is probably David Lynch. And David Lynch is like your guy. 100%. Right. So, and also you have even more than, than I do, like this sort of encyclopedic understanding of like genre cinema history right so (laughs) you're so (laughs) modest (laughs) why not (laughs) have is can you think of any other like project like this i mean aside from literally lynch lynch's twin peaks experiment right i mean that's that's the first thing that comes to mind and that's that's different in that he's not trying to redo it, but he is certainly using it as a chance to elucidate what he's talking about in the series, right? So Fire Walk With Me is 100% establishing the world of the Twin Peaks TV series. So in that respect, in the like, like we're, we're trying to get back down to like the brass tacks of the emotions and the characters and the motivations, I think I think I can see that happening in this film, even though I don't, I haven't seen the series. I can tell that he's trying to help us understand the characters and why these they make these choices. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a, a very apt comparison, both in that it's it is a a movie that could potentially be someone's introduction to this entire mm-hmm. world. It could stand as like a standalone object or it can be a, a supplementary thing for someone who's already a fan of the TV show. And that's personally why I, I was really excited to have you on this episode is because 
this first rebuild movie stands on its own in such an interesting way compared to the the ones that came afterwards. Hmm. And I think because you know there are, this movie is coming about like a decade after the original show came out, it's it might be a lot of people's first contact with Evangelion writ large. And so having you on because you haven't seen the show, I think gets us this really great like taste testing opportunity to see like does this actually make sense to someone who is coming to it fresh you know or is it more like a fire walk with me situation where it would get like booed at cans like so <laughs> wait f- fire walk with me got booed at can mm-hmm. everything gets booed at can though don't take it too seriously <laughs> they're snobs <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> okay whatever it's it is hard it's hard as a standalone though you know firewalk with me is still a piece of something bigger um Mm -hmm. so i do think it's it's a tougher conversation for film industry to show up and watch that and be like where am i just maybe a bit more context before we dive into your feelings about this movie the term genre Mm. How, how, are, how are we using that here? Like, what does it mean to be like a connoisseur or a uh, curator of genre films? Um, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone in my industry by saying this, but I always attribute it to lowbrow cinema and, and lowbrow aesthetics um, in that lowbrow means employing your physical body and your reactions to things physically a little more heavily than intellectual. So to me, Genre cinema is anything that scares you, anything that uh, makes you laugh, makes you feel deeply uncomfortable, um, those physical emotions. And of course, they employ your mind, too. But um, at the like, because it's not just horror, I always try to say, okay, anything that really gets to you, like heavy melodrama, full on genre to me, because it's really, really forcing you to feel things. So yeah, lots of horror, sci-fi, dark comedies. It's kind of my main jam. And so then how how would you classify Evangelion, You Are Not Alone? I mean, fully genre, right? And I think, um, you know, besides being definitely in a science fiction universe and dealing with, you know, the apocalypse and robots and monsters and um, a lot of the same kind of, you know, Godzilla area, <laughs> um, I think a lot of animation falls into genre solely because, and I want to talk about this a bunch. It's, it's one of the things I really admire about this because animation can go so far beyond reality just by nature. And so Mm -hmm. it can just so quickly affect you because they can do literally anything, you know, they don't have to wait for the perfect sunset. They can just draw it. It, And it's, it's incredible how much that can affect the emotions that, that a, a, a film can give you. So a lot of animation, I think, falls in that space. And we play a ton of animation at Fantastic Fest. I, I mean, you know, both in the anime space and, you know, a lot of claymation, stop motion, things that just kind of can go dark. Like, it's amazing how dark animation can go for that very same reason. Like, they can get away with gore in a different level. They can get away with uh, sexuality in a different level because it's all heightened and definitely in the genre space. Yeah. Totally. I think a lot about the way that animation allows a more severe manipulation of the human body in a way that like traditional filmmaking outside of total freaks like Cronenberg generally is like really hard to do. And the sort of playing around with like, you know, even something as like 
lighter, more comedic anime, the way the way that the human body will change scene to scene, like chibi versions in one shot or like someone just like a giant head looming over everyone to like scream at them for like comedic effect. But Eva, of course, uses those sort of tools for more uh, horrific purposes, mm-hmm. generally speaking, you know, like right off the bat there's you know shinji inside of the eva getting his ass beaten having his arm broken and all of that kind of playing around with like the sensations of the human body taken to the nth degree by his connection with the evangelion i think that that's like one of the reasons why this story works particularly well in animation and wouldn't quite be the same in in live action at least that's my perspective you don't want to watch teenagers be abused physically inside a giant robot in real life uh, tougher sell yeah yeah it's dark it's real dark i think it'd be uh, we've sort of like Ian and i have like danced around that part of the conversation in the course of this podcast in in large part because like live action adaptations of anime especially in the west have like a a bad track record not only in terms of like output quality as art piece but also in terms of like whitewashing so it's it's hard to like imaginatively think about what like a live action version of this would would be i'd love to see someone try right like i think seeing someone like make a really good faith effort in it would be really fascinating but at the same time, you're you're right in like the heightenedness of 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 animation as like a, a format, right? Even though comparatively, especially in this relative to the series, even this particular film is probably as as realistic as Ava gets. the The proportions stay about the same. Which is weird considering it's got like a metamorphic cube that shoots Death Star lasers, right? Like, for <laughs> but say, it's like, super grounded. <laughs> it's comparatively like very fucking grounded. But I think why one of the reasons I, I, I'm still drawn to animation as an adult is, and stop me if I'm wrong, but like Ian and I are, are both to some extent like experimental music and metal heads. And you, I know for a fact, are like a camp rock girl. Indeed. Right, right, and and camp isn't always my thing, but what I think camp and animation and like extreme heavy metal have in common is it's like just laying on the distortion, like as as hard as you fucking can. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and suspending disbelief from the get go, just being like, hey, this is not going to be normal. So just like get used to it and like go with it. And I think that that's essential because if you're watching this, even though you said it's pretty grounded, you can't watch this and be like, huh, this pacing feels like a very natural choice. And like, oh, look, he's already in a robot. That's a normal thing to have happen 10 minutes (laughs) in like and a child like, you know, you have to you have to go with it from the very beginning, I think, in all of those cases. So and that leads us pretty cleanly into what were your first impressions and reactions to this movie? Yeah, I mean, I I was very startled and, you know, I didn't read your guys' notes too detailed before I started watching on purpose, but I remember seeing in both your notes, you're like, damn, this is going fast. And it is very true. I mean, this thing, 
like you meet this kid, he's standing there for two seconds and then the whole world falls apart around him, right? (laughs) I mean, just like immediately. And this is one of those interesting choices, I think, in terms of the way they establish things because I didn't really understand the rules of the world and where everybody was in the world already. Um, So I was just like, he doesn't seem as concerned as I would be if all of a sudden everything blacked out, right? Um, Right. And eventually they give you enough clues to understand where we are. But I was shocked at the stakes. I I was shocked at how immediately the stakes are, you know, live or die humanity destruction, like right off the bat. And I was struck by how much I loved both of the things that were happening, but there's two very distinct things happening the entire time, right? There's this like action pack, full on Godzilla versus Kong, like bonkers, crazy music, you know, battle scenes. And then there's this very quiet, dramatic story about this boy and his personality and like the people who are trying to like help him and touch him and reach him and like help him become this hero. But they're too, they're so different. And every time it's like, it's like you're going from like, you know, a level 11, like, to a, a very subdued drama and it just keeps doing that. And I, I understand that it's because of the, the kind of choice to pace it and like cram it all together, but I think it makes for something really unique and special jarring and a lot of whiplash at first, but eventually I found that to be like, like breathing, like very poetic, you know, like it just, you calm down and then you ratchet back up and it just kind of keeps happening at this pace that, I've never I've not seen movies do that before. I've never seen a movie that alternates so dramatically over and over again, but kind of maintains the stakes and maintains your interest throughout that. So I I am a fan. I am a confused fan who's definitely going to need to like get further in. And I think this goes back to that comparison to Lynch. You would be like, huh, if Firewalk with me was the first thing you'd seen, you'd be like, I I'm really curious, but a little bit lost because nothing has ever affected me in this exact cadence before yeah no that's a good thing to point out is this sort of like up and down structure because that is a remnant of the tv show in Hmm. a lot of ways where it feels like the first six episodes kind of have this alternating pattern of like action episode psychological episode Hmm. and it goes back and forth between those things sort of it's like three separate dyads you know, at the beginning of the show, each organized around like the particular angel that Shinji has to deal with. And to organize, to make that feel like a movie structure, I mean, it kind of works because it sort of falls into like a three act thing instead of like six episodes. But I'm glad to hear that that worked for you because to me, that seems like the most obvious remnant of the TV show-ness. But if it does translate that I think says something kind of good about the, the director and the team's ability to reconfigure that to be a single story instead of a bunch of different stories. Yeah. I mean, and just again, like it works in a very jarring way, like nothing conventional, uh, like cinematically conventional about that structure at all. But yeah, just, just kind of enthralling in its own way. One of the things I've noticed when trying to introduce people to the TV show is they typically like, either you're in or you hate Shinji so much that you can't keep watching. That's right. You're, you're, how do you know where I'm going? Dude? Like <laughs> it's amazing. That's, you want to take over then? No. It, well, it really briefly, I just wanted to say Logan, like your metaphor about like that. It's like breathing blowing my fucking 
mind because that is like i've i've never been able to put that into words but there is this like forward propulsive cyclical nature where the drama comments on the action the ac action comments on the drama but they they're tonally very different but thematically totally unified mm -hmm. and i've never been able to to think of that before so thank you yeah. first of all but second i i guess it yeah, it's, you know, one of the first things you said was, wow, Shinji seems very calm, <laughs> given <laughs> given what's going on, which is funny because, like, the, and I think the bad faith fans of the show really kind of, like, dislike him as a main character, and the, the criticism tends to be that he's kind of histrionic, that he's too reluctant, that he's too freaked out, Right? Is it? And I have trouble with that. Oh my god, he was the most game person I've ever seen. He's like, ugh, you need me to do this robot? Okay. I mean, like that took like two minutes of convincing to like put his life on the line. Very game. Really? People. That's so interesting. It's so funny <laughs> that like the meme. The and this is a straight. They reference this meme in Godzilla versus Kong, but like the fan meme is called get in the robot because that seems to be like everyone's problem with Shinji is like, shut up, get in the robot. Okay. I want to see everybody else just walk into the robot in this circumstance. Okay. <laughs> I think he's very brave, very quickly. <laughs> I think so too. This to me is like underlining the big difference of anime fans coming to Evangelion and like, movie fans coming to Evangelion which is that like you're thinking about it as if it's someone you know or like yourself whereas I think a lot of anime fans get to it and think of how does he compare to other anime action heroes who would have immediately the minute they saw the robot been like hell yeah let's go kill this thing yeah. you know right and this is like I think the uh it, it makes me like rub my temples every time it happens where like I get, I start someone off with the show and they're like, ugh, this kid is such a wimp. Why is he complaining all the time? And it's like, he's fighting giant, like evil space aliens and like is from a broken home. Like, what do you want from the guy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think in, in a post-apocalypse, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's got only a little bit to lose, I guess, but that's, but like, it's still, I think that is. I think it's like the difference about coming from like a heightened place and coming from reality and kind of meeting in the middle. Because like, sure, in like fantasy land, people start, you know, fighting giants and, you know, monsters right away. But humans don't do that. And I think I think it's fair criticism that his character is a little histrionic, but he's also he's our vessel. And I'm so used to that. I'm so used to most protagonists being a little bit of a blank slate on purpose and a little bit contained in a way that you can kind of put yourself in them. I think that's a huge part of at least conventional storytelling, right? They're not, the protagonist is kind of the dullest person 90% of the time in a, in a story with this much action and this much going on. You just have to kind of go along for the ride. So you have to be able to sit in that person's shoes easily. And what did it feel like to sit in on Shinji's shoes or sit in, sit in Shinji's shoes? That <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it helped. It helped because his reactions were a little 
a little judgy, but in a way that that was easier for me to get on on the same like footing with, right? So like he goes and and like joins that woman in her flat and like she's crazy. She's got that pet penguin. She's like eating <laughs> Doritos and beer and he's just like, "What am I doing here?" And like it helped me because I was like, "Oh good. I don't have to pretend this is a completely normal situation. I can like <laughs> I can like identify with the fact that he is just flabbergasted by what's going on, right? Still very down. He still just goes for it, but he I like that he has that minute where he's like, "The hell is this?" because I need that minute. So that worked mm, for me. Good. I, I do want to note the Doritos thing because that is another <laughs> very jarring <laughs> thing about watching the rebuilds is the amount of product placement versus the original TV show. Yeah. Joseph, in your research for this, did you come across anything about that? Like the amount of like brand integration? Because that to me seems like was part of the big, one of the bigger meta narratives when this movie dropped of people being like, oh my God, there's so many ads in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, here's some here's some background for for Logan, right? And I guess the the people too, because in the listeners too, because in the podcast we've we've followed Hideki Yano's career up until End of Evangelion. So here's like here's the back of the here's the back of the uh, DVD of his life for you, Logan. So Hideki Yano, animation prodigy, non functional human being, is part of Studio Ghibli at the start. Is friends with. Hayao Miyazaki, they're still friends. Miyazaki fires him anyway because he can't fucking produce, like, on time, right? He and a bunch of his friends start this studio called Studio Gainax. They do some stuff. They do some great movies, some weird TV shows. Hideki Anno is, like, a non-functional human being. He falls into a deep depression. And in, like, a last-ditch effort to come out of this depression, he makes this TV series Evangelion by almost all accounts making the TV series nearly like breaks him as a human being and also everyone else involved and miraculously by the end of the series even though the ending does not make conventional sense and he shifts style it becomes a runaway hit in in Japan and he does a couple of movies to sort of tie it up. And it is a billion dollar franchise in Japan and, and internationally, but like not known that way in America. But Ian said before, like in Japan, Evangelion's like Star Wars. I think that's remarkable, right? Mm -hmm. And after that, the band splits up and people go to do some, some other things. And Hideki Anno makes some movies, often live action adaptations of anime he liked when he was a teenager. And they don't do well. And so it does seem like doing and doing the the rebuilds is sort of like him trying to like jumpstart his career again, right? And publicly he's like had a mental breakdown twice. He had a mental breakdown had to make the series to get himself out of it. And then making the series gave him another mental breakdown. And and so it seems like for him, he's like, we can do this series better if we've got like a bigger budget. We can use CG, which mm -hmm. is not used in the show at all. The show's like all hand, I believe. Maybe there's like some digital stuff, but like... Certainly not to the level of this movie. And it's far less conspicuous if it is there. Correct. 
Yeah. And, and so like, I, I, my understanding is that like to, to get the funding, he just had to like get a ton of sponsorships to, right. to so make it work. That's why like the beer that Masato is drinking is branded uh, this time around. You see them picking out the Doritos. There's a pizza hut uh, sign at one point, like it's kind of blink and you'll miss it, but it's there. It is a, it is a bit jarring, especially if you're more familiar with the TV show to suddenly see that and like i think like you can be cynical about it and be like oh it sucks that like quote unquote they sold out which i don't know if that rubric really applies for a franchise as big as evangelion to me i kind of it does feel like a bit more grounded in our world which is something that the rebuilds distinctly feel different than the tv show and we'll get into that i think as we get into two and three the way that like the TV show feels like it takes place entirely within this like cloistered environment of the nerve HQ and the city. But these movies really feel like they're connected to like a broader society. And like the Avas are not just unilateral forces that act however they want. You know, there's like consequences to that action. And I think this movie really, really, clues in on that so even though like yes it kind of sucks to see like doritos and pizza hut in an evangelion movie there's a way to flip it and treat it as a more positive element too i liked i liked that too what you just said about the it being like part of a real universe and having like other people around and i i mean i found some of those moments to be the most compelling too like when there's those two kids who are like recording the battle and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, look at him go. And then, like, it becomes a life-threatening situation for them all of a sudden. And you're like, yeah, like, the again, like, the stakes are very real here. If you're living in a world where you have two giant mechanical beasts fighting on your street, like, things are going to get destroyed, right? And, I mean, that, that uh, violence and, like, heaviness to it, I think, makes a huge difference. Again, I'm not comparing it to anything, really, but... I. I can't imagine if you just saw that as its own isolated thing and didn't understand the broader impact of that. Mm -hmm. That plot line is also part of the original show. I should amend that to say that like there are definitely consequences to the Evangelion's actions in the show, but they feel isolated just to Tokyo three. Whereas I think this movie does a a better job of zooming out to include all of Japan to some extent. Uh, but yeah, that that sequence I really liked. They added a shot in that that I thought was awesome of when Unit One has the Gatling gun and is firing at the Angel, and you see the shells like crushing cars beneath him and whatnot. Like that was such a cool little detail. I love the the way that this movie adds in stuff like that. Let me can I can I hop in on that for a second? Uh, so this is something that is a little bit of a mea culpa. This is something that we did poorly i think in the original season of the podcast right and i think it'd be interesting to, i wonder how logan feels after i'm done with this particular little bit of recap about a tour theory because like we we referred to hideki anno as the director of the show right and as the director of the rebuilds that's not technically accurate his 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 role is more like lead writer and showrunner is is more what it's like and so like the, the the man who i didn't give enough credit at the start of the podcast is a man named shinji higuchi who is 
the hands-on director more of the show and storyboarded this whole movie. The main character is named after him. Got it. And and he's he's one of Anno's close friends. And so here's like an interesting thing that happened in his career is the minute Ava was done, he had another project lined up. And those were the Die Gamera movies. Gamera is usually seen as like a a, a bad Godzilla ripoff. He's a corny big turtle. But in the 90s, after Evangelion, much of the Evangelion staff moved on to do a 90s live-action Gamera trilogy that are commonly considered to be next to the original Godzilla film and, like, Shin Godzilla, the best that Japanese monster movies have have ever gotten. Unlike a third, a quarter of the budget of the Godzilla movies. And... Shinji Higuchi doesn't direct any of them. A man named Sushise Kaneko directs them. And he's like a contemporary of Takahashi Miike, but he's never really gotten his due in America, sadly. He's like a guy who's like overdue to have like a boxed set of even his non-genre movies come out in America. But I but I I digress. Shinji Higuchi's his effects director and gets this reputation for being some people think the best miniature effects photographer that's ever lived of like creating hyper detailed miniatures and using them to create effects shots. And most of what they add into the rebuilds is stuff that he storyboarded that looks like what he did with miniatures in the Gamera movies, but they animate it. Hmm. That's and that stuff like, the shells coming out of the Gatling gun and falling on the car is a thing that like he would do with a model in the Gamera movies and they just animate it here. Or um, the, the scene where they have to pull unit one back when Ramiel first hits it with the particle beam. Right. Another scene that is vastly different from the TV show. So Ramiel is the big cube angel. Right. And in the show, when Shinji gets hit with the beam, they basically just pull him back down immediately. And it's the episode they... break. It's the yeah. it's like the cutoff. It's like that's the end of the episode and the beginning of the next episode. They've already pulled him back. So instead, in this one, the fact that they like have this deliberation of like, well, how do we save him? Like prolongs the agony of the moment in a really intense and like uncomfortable way. And you're right, like the figuring out like materially, oh, how would we get him back down without ejecting him is like a cool shift and you're right we should also challenge the idea that like all of this is coming like athena springing from the head of zeus out of hideki anno you know like this is a a team effort very Mm -hmm. clearly yeah i mean you just disproved the auteur theory by saying what you said right i mean the number of of pieces that need to be there and and when you talk about you know he's basically the effects artist at that point right if he if he could formulate the miniatures and then take that brain and put it into anime i mean he sounds to me like you know the tom savini to like every every 80s horror movie right i mean like you gotta have somebody who knows how to do that stuff and that's not the director the director Mm -hmm. is one tenth of a movie i'm learning at most (laughs) (laughs) as someone who has a screenplay written that makes me feel really happy (laughs) i dude i think the screenwriter is far more essential far more essential i've seen a lot of screenplays hired out to people who 
don't really know that material and they do not deserve to be called auteurs. <laughs> <laughs> Print it. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get back to the movie itself. We've mentioned that it has how do we want to do this? Do we want to do this by plot beats? Do we want to do this by characters? What what makes sense to you, Joseph? I want to I want to do what makes Logan feel good because if you let me drive all I'm going to do is point out the little fucking cool things that like weren't in the series or that I didn't notice that I think are like Ramiel has a cross blast now that just right. makes me happy. It, um, I mean, so, you like, guys, you, me you drive, guys just do that. You guys run your comparison and I'll, I'll pop in when I feel like I'm just, you know, brimming to say something, but I'm curious to hear how, how they change things as well. Well, maybe we should also, take stock of how Joseph and I feel about this movie generally. So Joseph, how did, what do you think of this movie? Like, do you enjoy watching this film? Yes, I do. I, I, I think it is like of comparable quality to the first six episodes of the TV series, which makes a lot of sense. And I think, particular so particularly like the first and third of like the triptych are some of the best parts of the show like i think the ramiel sequence totally fucks and like the the um satchel fight the get in the robot sequence is great they do reorder some things in the movie to they do make some concessions to try and make it work more as a film. So like in this series, the first episode ends with him powering up to fight Satchiel and they hard cut. And then the second episode is a flash forward where he's got post battle amnesia. He like doesn't remember. They're like, you did it. You beat the angel. You wound up in the hospital. And he's like, what? I did. I did what? And you get like, a lot of like him and Misato and like the the penguin and stuff. And then it's not till he's like alone in his room for the first time that he has like a PTSD flashback. And then you get what happened in the fight, which isn't how the movie does it. The movie does it straight chronological. Like, nope, he's in powered up and now he's going to get his fucking ass whipped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like there's a lot of concessions like that that I think are useful redactions that if you were to do a lot of the jumping around in time that the TV show does without the pause of a break in the episode, it would just be too confusing to like follow the exact beats the way that they're laid out in the show. I do have a few problems with how they handle certain time jumps like I think that they really kind of botch the unit zero test flashback in this movie yeah I think it's actually really artfully done in the tv show and just yeah. kind of comes out of nowhere in this movie but in general I think a lot of the streamlining of the story serves to make it a better movie and make it more movie like in a way that is really fun to watch. Like this movie kicks ass. Like in my opinion, it's, it's a much more like high, high pace, like high energy version of the TV show that, and the, and the climax is just wonderful. We'll, we'll get, we'll get to like 
singing the praises of the finale when we get to it. But like, yeah, I just want to like to be clear for anyone listening. Like, I really enjoy this movie. I think it's really cool. Well, not much of a debate. It sounds like we're all just <laughs> fans. Good. <laughs> it should be a love fest. <laughs> well, I mean, there's some there are some like interesting pieces that like very little is removed but the things that they remove are sometimes pretty significant and there's there's one sequence that's like particularly important and what's weird is like i actually think this is one of the best sequences in the show in retrospect but in the series they establish really early on and i don't even think they get into this in this film that like Unit one has a mind of its own. Like you you get the unit zero going berserk bit a little bit, but you don't see that like unit unit one also has a mind of of its own. And so like in this series, when Shinji's like afraid to get in the robot, there's like a tremor because Satchel's like fired a cross blast like at the ground, and so it's shaking everything. And some debris comes down and is about to crush Shinji, and unit one moves on its own to protect him. Wow. Super significant in the show and they and they cut it. Yes. That that was the first like, oh, we're doing something different moment for me. I like big exclamation point there. And I I don't necessarily know if it's it makes sense to get into why here, but what also struck me was what they did in there's one other crucial difference in that scene that I was sort of struck by, which is when he says, like, I'm not getting in the robot. And it has the reaction shots to Ritsko, Masato, and then the red shirts. Right. Which is like, that's not in the original show. Like, in the original, it's like only these three people on this bridge together and no one else. It has that sort of isolated, like, Shinji alone against the world kind of feeling. But here it's like, oh, there's a bunch of people that you're letting down by not getting in the robot. It's not just your direct supervisors. It's all these people that put in the work to make this thing move that are looking on as well. And that to me was like, oh, that's a new note. Like that's a new flavor that this show has never really done before. And I think that actually carries through the whole movie too. Yeah, Is that meant to be like their replacement motivation? Because... Those are two very different motivations, right? The This motivation you talked about, Joseph, about like there's some kind of bond between him and and unit one. I mean, that's that's powerful in its own emotional way. Ian, what you're talking about is like social responsibility as like a motivator. It's like a completely mm-hmm. different context to start that on. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like what is that? I actually do think that that's like one of the big themes of this movie it, like going from the title down is like you're not doing this alone mm. like you may be like in the final right before the final battle when it's him and Masato Masato says to him like you may be the only person piloting the Ava but like you're not the only person facing this like all of us are in this together and that to me is like a a noticeable change from the tone of the TV show but you could also have said in this other version that he was not alone because he's with Ava like that that's his bond right mm-hmm. there right so it's like which who do you, who do you attribute his his kind of like background support to like where where's that coming from that's so crazy that those were different because that sounds like totally different things to me right I think, yeah i think that's also what's up with the the title mm-hmm. of of the movie mm-hmm. right so if you think about it like like the mechanics of the evangelion are like here's a large entity that has its own 
drive and purpose. And then into it, we insert a smaller person and that person's connection relative to it in inverts it instead of like the Evangelion being like an engine for the apocalypse. It's supposed to save mankind. Right. And that's because we've stuck Shinji into it. Right. And so it's, you are alone. And then insert into that in parentheses, you're not alone. And it changes everything. Mm -hmm. I, that's the, that's, uh, that's what I think the naming convention is driving at. Yeah. And so you add a layer on top of that where, he's not alone because of the people who are helping him who are all trying to save mankind. So it's like all of these layers of like mankind helping Eva be, you know, want to do the right thing. And then like just one man, multiple men helping all of mankind that those like 10 people are responsible for. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of layers. Yeah. Yeah. So given that a lot of this comes down to like Shinji's relationship to other people, uh, one of the other things that I think was like noticeably different was his relationship to Masato in this movie. Uh, but before we, like Joseph and I dig into that, I want to get Logan's impression on Shinji and the Shinji Masato setup in this movie. That's so just in case you're not clear on the, the names of the characters, because I know you're new to this. Uh, Masato is the the woman that he ends up living with. Right. Who I who I earlier just called woman who he lived with because I did not remember (laughs) Um, which I think is is a quick indication of how difficult that relationship was for me to fully understand because she does Mm -hmm. she pulls in out of nowhere she's like get in the car like let's go like I gotta go take you places and that is a character development that I missed Um, and another one of the reasons where I found him alarmingly game because I didn't understand why he trusted this person inherently Mm -hmm. So please, like, <laughs> well, so there's the postcard that he has at the very beginning of the movie, which it's like her Tinder profile or right. something that he, she's given him. Um, so he, it's, he, it's he trusts her because she's hot. It's one of these situations. <laughs> I, I think it's also that like he's been sent that card in advance being like, your dad is sending you to Tokyo 3. It's like asked to like ask for you to come to Tokyo 3. I'm the person that's going to pick you up and bring you to your dad. Okay. Um, and it's pretty much identical setup uh, in the TV show. And all the t- the first episode of the TV show also moves very quickly, which I think is one of its strengths. Yeah, that's to, that's to its benefit, r- right? And I know it's jarring, but at the same time, there is something I think really intoxicating about it. Just feeling like the people making this just did like a crack hit yeah, and then oh. started telling the story. Oh, my God. It's so propulsive. Like you don't even have a second to think about if you care. You're just like in. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, her her being attractive is still a, a point of commentary, right? I mean, the fact that she's definitely someone that he's he's wanting to connect with and wanting to listen to because of being a teenage boy. Hormones, mm-hmm. man. Right. Yeah. I, the, I don't... Joseph, how do you feel like this movie tackles the, like, male gazeness compared to the show? Because I feel like it's it's at, it's ambiently the same, but it feels less deliberate in the movie compared to the TV show. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems this is like one of the off-putting things about anime, right? Is it 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 has this like super male gaziness that unfortunately, like the genre has not, in my estimation, improved upon since this. Like 
at at all. And the original series, I think, felt more like it's trying to give you a, a hard on than mm-hmm. this. Whereas this one, it seems like, all right. Oh, the panties. Right. We did that the first time. Are we changing the panties? And someone's like, I, people like the panty thing. He's like, all right, do it again. Fuck it. <laughs> Do we, I mean, how long is it going to take? Eight seconds? How much money is that to animate the panties? We can do it with the computer this time. Great. Fuck it. Print it. Done. That's the way it, it, it like, feels to me. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I was watching this movie and I thought about that, like, a, a lot. It, why? There is some, like, inherent cultural difference where in, in, in Japanese storytelling and in anime in particular... There, there isn't a cognitive dissonance in this idea of I'm going to tell you this heady, deeply thematic, philosophical adult story about the nature of God and the nature of mankind and the purpose for suffering, right? Why is it that you suffer, right? Like that's like and, – and why is it that connection with other people is fraught and difficult despite everyone's best intentions, right? These are like admirable – things to tell a story about it that's like some tarkovsky stalker shit to me right but if if tarkovsky just had like a a busty girl in a bra randomly blushing in the middle of of stalker in russia and in america that would be like whoa why what are you what are you doing this is like a contrary urge whereas like in anime in particular there just isn't Outside of Miyazaki, which is probably why why he's accepted more readily in America, right? There there just doesn't seem to be any like conflict in the creator's mind about like, well, yeah, she's yeah. still hot. Here's her boobs. Yeah, by the way, mm-hmm. yeah, tits. I, why not? Why not do the Bible and tits? And I gotta, Th- there's I, no reason why not. I have to, to tell you, it doesn't really bother me as much as I would have thought. And like honestly, the the site I watched the film on you know, surrounded by ads for, for anime porn sites. Right. And right. I was, I was kind of worried right away. I was like, Oh, this is going to be just like, like pure fantasy, right. All these women with these tiny waists and giant boobs that, you know, because of the animation you can get away with, but that's a, that's a genre convention too. Right. Genre right. is about the fact that titillation doesn't actually have to be that far separated from terror that it, it's all bodily reflexes. So I kind of I kind of love the idea that those things can exist, coexist, and they do coexist. I mean, Lynch does that, right? There's mm-hmm. there's the hottest lesbian sex scene I've ever seen in Mulholland Drive, right? I mean, and it's <laughs> but and it's it's still in like the headiest movie you can think of. So I mean, I think that's part of uh, outsider art and genre that I actually respect is is not pretending that sexuality is some base animal thing that we can't talk about when talking about intellect i think they can coexist Mm. so i was truly not as bothered as i anticipated being by by some of the sexualization there yeah some feels like a very crucial word in that (laughs) sentence 
Yeah, what, to be clear, I don't what like is the, the exception there. Like what? I think I think it's what I mean. It sounds like there's a little bit of fan service, right? There's a little right. bit of service to the people who love the show for those reasons more than any other reason, which maybe then starts to get a little questionable. But like certainly, like the scene where he like I, I guess it's the panty scene you're referring to, right? Where he like falls on her and all her underwear go flying, and he's just mounting her naked, and like you're just like that's that doesn't seem like a thing you need to be doing right now. And that's I'm sorry, that's his sister, right? Ray? Oh, oh, God, here we go. Okay. <laughs> just it's checking. So, I'm just... Do you want... Okay. This is actually like a weirdly... Good question. <laughs> yeah. Let me make one point and then let's get into that. Because that is a really fun thing to talk about. Maybe the most fun thing to talk about about the show. Um, to be... I had the thought when watching this movie that like the hesitation on the part of creators in in quote unquote the West, so to speak, uh, an artifice that is not real and that I hate. Right. But like in 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 that frame, this hesitation to engage headiness and philosophy and and also titillation at the same time is I think it's disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I like I think it's uh it's a it's um a weird it's a faint it's a kind of way of feeling artistically superior to the rabble. It also it's it strikes me as like kind of it can come off as very prudish yeah, and it's like judgmental. Yeah, moralizing totally. Mm-hmm. That said, every in no matter what the medium is, every time we get to the Shinji and Ray's apartment scene, I just want to hit the ejector seat and leave planet Earth. Like, it's a lot. It's it really sucks. Like it's the one moment where I was like, we really have to do this again. Like really, really, we have to do this again. Ugh. It is an extended slapstick objectification for sure. Right, and I in the. In the show, I tried to defend it as like establishing Ray's lack of ego and lack of self self conception. Like the fact that she doesn't see it as like an affront to her personhood that this is happening is supposed to tell us something about like her lack of concern for herself, broadly speaking. Which I think this movie still has some of, but feels like, do we really have to retell it this exact way every single time? There's like a playing the hits element of like certain scenes repeating in this movie that like kind of just, I just wish they could have found a more artful way to do this, you know? It's it's playing the hits, but I think it is also someone in the boardroom being like, Anno, listen. The little die cast, play cast models of like Ray with the panties, those things are going to put your kid through fucking college, just like they bought you your house. So think twice before you cut it. Okay. Like I'm, I can't, I don't know, but I'm, it just feels correct to me in like an esoteric way that People aren't going to buy these Ray branded Doritos. If you do not include <laughs> the panties scene, I I think it's, I think it might be one of the things that doesn't translate as well. If you start with the film though, because those mm-hmm. are the moments that feel totally out of character for what else is going on. Yes, I agree. Yes. Do you, if we're going to help you like with the Ray thing, the Ray conundrum, the problem is it's intimately tied into the metaphysics of of the story. 
and like you said it it unlike you know everything you learn in screenwriting 101 it does not care about explaining the rules at all and like sort of part of the fun of of Ava the puzzle box nature of it is he never outlines all the rules all the way and sort of like the what are the narrative challenges to the viewer is like can you figure out what the way the gizmo works can you do that right and so from someone who has like a totally like fresh perspective do you feel like you have any idea what the fuck is going on (laughs) i think there's so so to me all of the the like people in the the nerve headquarters right they are giving intense exposition so to me those scenes felt really obviously there to help you just understand the basic bare bones but i think what they were always doing was not the bare bones of like the mythology like not like the overarching you know way these things work or the way the world is at this point but like the reactionary details right so they'd be like "Uh oh so now it's doing this so now the only thing we can do to defeat it in this circumstance is this this and this and it's like so specific to like this one if then scenario that I, I couldn't tell you how these things operate I could only tell you how you defeat an angel when this exact thing is happening you know right. yeah so I think they left out the the big picture and just got real nitty-gritty and and like aggressively nitty-gritty sometimes no categorical imperatives only hypothetical ones in yes. this particular case yes exactly <laughs> Cor- correct do we do we do you want me to explain the right thing um well this is i think this actually leads before we get to that do you feel the inclination to watch the rest of evangelion or not having seen this i feel an inclination to understand and this i think think this would be you know dependent on the person i feel an inclination to understand what i just saw better more than i feel an uh, inclination to see what happens next i want to go back and understand these six episodes and and what i saw in kind of an abbreviated fast forwarded version better so the way out is through though yeah that's the problem (laughs) i let's keep it just to the 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 text of this film then because after Shinji loses slash wins the fight against the first angel, gets knocked out, but ultimately succeeds. There's this sequence where he appears on what Joseph and I have been calling the train of thought, um, which is this kind of recurring visual metaphor that anytime Shinji's like really turtled inside himself and is like facing his demons, he, he does so on this train at dusk, you know, and Instead of seeing Shinji on that train, we hear a conversation between his parents. About names. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, Right. And given that, I do think it's clear that Shinji does not know who Rei is. He also is clearly not very close with his father. And I think that there is that sense of like sexual tension, like obviously the him stumbling into her apartment is a loaded scene in that way. I do think you're supposed to have some sort of like lingering questions about exactly what their relationship is, even if Shinji doesn't has no idea what the hell is going on and is kind of just taking it as it comes. So I don't think this movie really has much to elucidate about the family relation or the family dynamic there. Right. But I, I also don't think it's necessarily like, 
out of pocket to suggest that <laughs> there is something really fucked up and weird about there's, these there's two characters. There's something from birth. No matter what, there's some connection between them from birth because his mother is talking about this woman before he even exists, right? So, like... Mm-hmm. Correct. This was just that my conjecture, correct. but I'm assuming no, this twist. <laughs> it, it is a useful conjecture okay. because it kind of points out like what is like common knowledge to Joseph and I and would not be to someone who had never watched this before and would be very confusing In just to this, someone who hasn't. Just yeah. this one movie. Yeah. Fascinating. Sure. The, it, interesting. The name thing is good and is actually also different from the series. And I think that's an improvement, actually, although it's a little strange, right? So in the series, very late, they make this like point where they say, oh, did you know that your your dad took your mom's last name? Like, your mother's last name was Akari. And do we ever hear Gendo's original last name? I don't think we do. I think we do, but it, it never, it only comes up the one time and like never gets repeated. And it's not Ayanami. It's not Ayanami. No. Right. Okay. So that that they that Motobuki, they give... I think, is his last name in the show. Correct. Sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that they give like Ayanami formally, like that his as his mother's surname, like takes a little bit of like Gendo's sinister like scam godiness away. <laughs> right. But but does make a lot of narrative sense. It's cleaner, certainly. It's much cleaner. Before we lose track of it i do want to note the differences in the masato and shinji relationship as well because okay in in the show there is much greater pains to show masato really trying to connect with shinji and i think in this movie it's expedited it's much faster so for example like the sequence after shinji runs away um, and is like sort of wandering throughout Tokyo and before getting brought back in, there's a scene where the two of them really reconcile and come to like a mutual understanding and like try to like make peace. That never happens in this movie. Um, it right. just cuts immediately to him instead reconciling with Toji, which is an interesting choice, especially considering uh, what happens to Toji for the rest of the rebuilds. But that's <laughs> a story for another podcast. Yeah, there's some <laughs> foreshadowing for you. Um, uh, make the story make more sense. Mm, no, 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 no. And I think that the sort of contentious relationship between Shinji and Misato is a really interesting change. And I think it makes sense in, in the movie because in the TV show, there's more of a sitcom element to their relationship. The fact that like every episode, there's like some scenes where it's just the two of them in the apartment talking over like the issues of the day. Whereas in this, it's like, well, we've just got to get to the next angel fight. Like, we don't really have time for the two of you to, like, sort this shit out, you know? So they have, like, little odd couple moments, like, throughout instead of just that one. Yeah. Kind of. what they, It's like really one zany. It's such a zany scene. And it's truly just, like, two minutes long in the middle of everything. Right. That's wild. Okay. <laughs> and I mean, she even comments on it, which I don't know if she does in the original show of saying like, am I being too flamboyant? It's like he seeing through me. Like it, it sort of suggests that this is a front that she's putting up as part of her job. And certainly it does not match the tenor of her character for the rest of this movie where she's like, especially all business in a way that Masato is not in the show. Right. I, I definitely I read their relationship. I mean, you're right. There's not a lot of them being close to each other. It's like they skipped that part. And everything I saw in the movie was her having to like resist 
the sexual side of their relationship right every time she's talking Mm. about it she's like i'm not interested in him like that like i can't be can't think about him that way like she's she's a lot more concerned with like pulling away from him than than getting close to him so i just presume that they i don't know got close somewhere that i didn't see which i guess they Mm -hmm. did god i forget that they it would have been better if they just removed that in entirely because that is actually like one of the weak points of of the series i think is that they like include misato in like shinji's weird sexual tension problems where like it is much cleaner if she's just the benign older sister type character yeah mm-hmm. and just more uh, believable it doesn't it doesn't track right. to me yeah right yeah it's a vestigial element of the show that even the later movies don't really like the 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 Masato Shinji relationship does not get warmer from here. Like that them starting off in this more removed sort of dynamic only makes the elements of the show that have been like carried over seem like all the more jarring. That's a really good observation. They background a lot of the B cast even more in this film. That, that is, is like a change that's made. Like it does seem like part of like, and maybe this is what he's getting at and like cleaning the story up is he does really ratchet in. And this is what cinema is good at, right? Like he ratchets even more tightly in on like, this is Shinji's story and his, his main like in, and, and it's the story of him and him trying to understand Ray really, which is just one thread in the series. Like in the series, the B cast they all get like really good, really interesting arcs. And part of like adapting this to 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 film is is him removing a, a lot of that. Are there any other particular character dynamics that we want to highlight before maybe touching on some broader plot stuff that happens. I mean, I have a million questions about the daddy issues at the core of this whole thing. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Excellent. Aphex yeah. twins come to daddy intensify. Right. <laughs> yeah. Gendo, what a card, that guy. Um, yeah. What's your, what's your first impressions of, of Gendo Ikari commander, commander of the whole operation here at nerve? I mean, to me, it's, Again, like I'm assuming there's so much more, you know, to this in the series and other films. But to me, this is just shorthand for like motivating a character. And I I think it's yeah. I, I'm, you know, when I read scripts to me, it's really lazy to just be like, ah, they are trying to like impress their dad. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, I know we all we all are grappling with our parents and where they failed us or, vice, you know, vice versa. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's so suddenly introduced he's just like oh yeah here's your dad he's telling you you got to do this and he's like dad speak to me and his dad's like no do it and then he just does it you know i mean it's it's so simplified that it didn't it didn't strike me as as meaningful as something like that should be that's one of the most rushed parts of this whole thing to me do you feel like the the consequent scenes in the movie do a good job like a better job of like deepening that relationship like how do you feel like that tracks over the course of the film honestly unfortunately no to me every every time it comes back it's just like like flicking the plot forward it, it's not those are not the emotional beats that resonate and feel authentic to to shinji's story to me those are the ones that feel like plot drivers that i think is an extremely damning critique 
of this film. Um, yeah. And of the rebuilds as a whole, because I think one of the bigger things that happened over the, in the rebuilds is that there's a lot less of the Yui Shinji dynamic, um, which listeners will know we've already sort of addressed even in this episode to some degree. Um, if real ones know, but the overwhelming arc of these, of the three movies that we've seen so far is a much more uh, deliberate focus on like Shinji and Gendo's conflict. And if that's not coming across to first time viewers in this movie, I think that's like a, a, a huge failure of this movie to translate the concepts of the show to a wider audience. What's your take, Joseph? Well, it's, I think you're correct, but I also think like you've got 90 minutes, you've only got so much dialogue, animation's prohibitively expensive, right? So like every single minute of it needs to be very carefully accounted for, right? And you get to this point where probably, you know, as a writer, Anno's got to think, okay, do I just, like, I've got 10 seconds to set this fucking domino in place. And my choices are, in the course of like telling the story, right? My choices are, I can just have Misato say to the camera, ah, Shinji has a lot of angst about his dad and really wants his father to love him. And and let the mystery be about like the mechanics of the world. Or, you know, he can let the story be mysterious and ambiguous about Shinji and his dad's motivations. And Misato can just say to the camera, interesting. Are you aware that your psychopathic father is attempting to use right hand magic to literally become God, which is more jarring, right? Like, right. I, I think it's the latter. So I understand why sometimes you need to just, just out with Get it. There. But is it the best storytelling? No. What do we make of the scene at the end where, so correct me if I'm wrong, but Gendo is not present in the show for Operation Yashima. Or to my least... recollection, no. And so that's that feels like a very pointed change. And to have that sequence where Gendo is like, call it off, Shinji can't do this for the sniper rifle mission. And Masato be like, fuck you, he's going to do it and he's going to prove you wrong. That never happens that way in the show. And to like when that happened, I wanted to like hurl my table through my window out of excitement. Like I got so hyped about that. It's like one of the, it's like the biggest, if we're talking fan service, that's the fan service that I wanted was this kind of like rejection of Gendo inside of the film in a way that like it never happens that cleanly in in the show at least not at that level uh, or in that part of the storyline and maybe that's why they decided to make this shift so that we don't over identify or over connect to gendo and so that we can just feel that euphoria of him pushing back against him more like we don't have mm -hmm. like a balance of time with gendo and shinji we just like understand shinji's side so much stronger maybe that's what they're going for because again like in the condensed beats of 90 minutes you just gotta know exactly who you're rooting for and not have any question about it so having gendo be like this stoic kind of unknown entity makes that a lot easier and and the the ramiel fight is just so extra in this in a way that it 
spoiler in the future rebuilds like the extraness of it begins to grate on me and then i think at some point becomes like a, a joke at some point in time like i think it becomes like gremlins 2 where he's like isn't it funny how over the top i'm being mm-hmm. i have so much money from doritos now <laughs> um <laughs> And I mean, this is like, this is the one that screams whenever it's attacked, right? Like, like this, like yeah, high pitched, yeah. <laughs> crazy, guttural, girly scream. Yeah, I can see that getting grady, grading over time, <laughs> for sure. It, but it, the, the, in its extraness, it does have this like wonderful payoff at the end where you get like unit one standing back up and Shinji picking the sniper rifle back up and being like, nah, fuck it reload i'm shooting again and i'm like yes this is what i want feel a little bit of fucking empowerment yeah that is a type of behavior that we like literally never see from shinji this is a very different shinji in the movie compared to the the show he would have just like frozen up and and like it, it wouldn't have felt the same there's a real action hero quality to shinji by the end of this movie that feels like distinctly different um, and I think it's because of that whole lesson that Masato imparts to him of like, you're like more people than just us are relying on you. Like your friends at school, they want you to succeed. And there's like all of the shots of, you know, like all of the military also shooting at Ramiel and then like all of the people throughout Japan, like rooting for him in some way or another. And there's this sense of like, not only is he empowered by like his own drive to succeed but there's that social responsibility theme which is just like an ecstatic moment for me in in this movie as a fan because it feels so different and so earned it feels like it's adding something to the themes of the show rather than just recapitulating the themes of the show but i'm curious to see how it how like that is that something that like is clear to first time viewers or is that just something that like fans of the show will pick up that that his heroism is so kind of broader and broader like well the the social responsibility aspect that you mentioned like the way that like his victory is tied to like the collective sacrifice of the rest of the the country like the blackout and all of that like is that something that you feel like is present in the finale yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that the again, like those stakes right off the bat. Like, I think, I think throughout, you understand, uh, you know, and maybe this is coming from the cultural, you know, the U.S. cultural point where we know, help us, Obi Wan, you're our only hope, you know, as like our kind of checkpoint for what a hero is. But I 100% understood that this kid had to save humanity from that very first scene, and I had no, mm-hmm. you know. Um, doubts that that's what he was doing and so you're right I mean it's really satisfying at the end and I think that's maybe maybe part of what he was doing in making this was trying to understand American audiences in that way understand the hero journey the way that we want to see it and and you know the way that moves us I was also thinking about how vastly different the circumstances of that mission would have been if it was in America Mm. like yeah rolling blackouts across the whole country like please be aware we've got a teenage boy and a robot he has to fire a missile at a giant screaming cube and like half of the country would be like there's no screaming cube right (laughs) yeah they'd be out there saying you can't tell me i have to stay underground and then they'd be trampled and 
I don't believe that anyone was actually cross-blasted. These people are crisis actors. <laughs> they're being paid by George Soros. And they're uh, they're eating children underground. <laughs> well, uh, that part... <laughs> oh, no. That's oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if you're denying sinister cabals, uh, Ava's not... <laughs> Ava is all in on sinister cabals. That's um, kind of yeah, kind of their whole steez. <laughs> right. Um, they're not Jewish though. Well, no, Dead Sea Scrolls, yes. So that's good. Um, not to be superficial, but I did at least want to get just at Ramiel mm-hmm. as a as a as an opponent as a creature because interestingly, like Ramiel's iconic in the show. But the rebuild Ramiel is has some like the transforming screaming quality of it resonates with like people in a memetic way. There's like a a, a reused even by people who haven't seen Evangelion GIF of Ramiel transforming it. It just says screaming geometrically. Um, <laughs> that like people in like. It's like software devs will like send that to one another on Slack. It's like screaming it. geometrically. I believe it. Yeah. It was like feminist primal rage. I felt it. I loved that. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Ramiel at Lilith Fair. I'm, I'm so in. Exactly. <laughs> on the main stage. Um, yeah, I... So the, we also have to talk about the CG, I think, here, because that is a jarring element for most of the film. Like, I feel like it's mostly used to, like, make, like, a lot of the big technological stuff move smoother, like the buildings going up and down and in a lot of the walk and talks, like, the you know, all of the trucks rolling by in CG and whatnot. But they crucially also animate two of the angels with the computer graphics and I love CG Ramiel how like it doesn't feel like it exists in the world of the movie it feels like this incursion of something like unreal or like hyper real right. you know it it, it kind of adds to the like Lovecraftian beyondness of the angels that their CG and everything else is appears to be hand animated <laughs> yeah I there's also just like some I'm laughing because I get like a um that Ramiel transforms is new is like a new thing for for the film. Ramiel's just a cube in in the series. Um and initially like I was off put by the idea that Ramiel would transform. But there's something just so viscerally satisfying about like the mechanical kink of it like turning back into its like normal fucking form that mm-hmm. just I like I get I feel glee thinking about it. Right. It's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> it's like a nice twist for the fans to see Ramiel like taken to the nth degree. Right. Mathematically, geometrically, you know. <laughs> to truly another dimension, you could mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What do you what do you think about the 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 creatures? Honestly, like I'm I'm staring at you guys kind of blankly because the concept of computer generation gen, yeah, CG within within animation is like blowing my mind. Like I don't think I understood that I was watching two forms of the media interact. 
at the same time, which might be a compliment to it, right? That it was seamless mm-hmm. in that way, um, or just might be me being dumb and not really thinking about it. But I mean, everything was beautiful. Everything was so beautiful to me in this that I I loved the creatures. I loved those, you know, kind of extended montages of like the suiting up and the burp, 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 and like like a rocket launch. I loved um, the the moments that actually struck with me the most and that I initially wrote my notes about like why I love the animation was like when he'd just be sitting and the fog would like roll past him and it was so and the music was so beautiful and I was like again you couldn't just like capture this live action you had no chance of capturing the fog at that moment with the light like this and I I don't know there were so many little things that were beautiful and so forgive me if I don't know which of the things I just mentioned are CG and which are not but I thought it worked all together very well. I never found a moment where I was just like, this doesn't belong here. That's good to hear. I, I feel like that is, it, it's, that's interesting. Cause I, I think that the, the CG only gets more conspicuous in the later two. And I guess it is because like, I've watched so much of the show and like seen it so many times that it's very clear when something is brand new. But I also think like the hand-drawn animation is gorgeous in this, but the opening sequence in this movie is like jaw-dropping. So beautiful. Um, Like the the blood ocean, the trees growing in like the overgrown part of Tokyo. It's like, oh, wow. They really did put all that Pizza Hut money to good use in this movie. (laughs) I'm really glad you brought up the music. Ian and I are music nerds. We love the music in the series. However, I really do think that the the score here is a, is not only a step up but is I think wonderful. I, like I didn't that was like one of the things that really stuck with me in the series which is I was like, "Oh my god, it's so full and um affecting." Mm-hmm. And um I just why why can't a Marvel movie sound like this? Right. Um so, <laughs> like it has that Ghibli energy mm-hmm. in in this score. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically again, just like the final sequence, the score. That's a piece of music that was never in the show. That is, I've had it like stuck in my head since the first rewatch. Like I guess a, a month ago now, when we first started planning out the structure for this episode, I was just like. Every time it's like I have to get up and do something I don't want to do, like that dun 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 thing, like pops up in my head. It's like so evocative. It's like really heroic. You're right. You're right, though, Joseph. I mean that there's no reason that these things should be more emotive than you know what's conventionally out there. Like it, this is, but this is one of the more powerful scores. And I am not a person who recognizes or thinks about the music when I watch most things. Kind of you know it's just in the background and you forget about it and it doesn't really affect you but this was like so striking not distracting but like so essential to the experience for me the amount of care and like attention to detail in in this project is at least i think a testament to it and that is like a a carryover from the show and that is like part of the brand and i think that's part of why i like animation i like anime in particular i like cinema but I, I love Evangelion. And part of that is not just the weird kooky metaphysics or the or like the weird sexuality. Like part of that is like the the care 
in in every piece of it is so evident and i adore it i but i just i know that like the cost in human suffering in it is high like i i I, like animation is taxing Mm -hmm. it's painful to 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 do animators like cause themselves like massive like muscle trauma over years in in some cases to do things like this and so like i i don't like i don't like that making art is painful i don't think that's like a romantic notion which is why it's hard for me to look at something like this but still honestly say why can't everything just have this much love poured into it why 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 can't we all just do a, a a little better? Like, there's no reason that something that is like a blockbuster mainstream lowbrow thing can't can't really be like obviously cared for and loving. And I just wish more Americans would would find that. Mm-hmm. That has to do with who's who's involved, though, right? Like, this isn't the auteur theory because this is all of the artists involved, but. You know, when you're talking about a Marvel movie, and I don't want to go too far down that road, right? But uh, you're not talking about people who are thinking about art. You're not talking about people who are thinking about how to move people anymore. They're hitting the lowest common denominator across the board as efficiently as they can because it's expensive enough to just pay those actors to exist for five minutes. You know, they're not thinking right. about paying for anything more than they have to to get people in the seats. But yeah, I, I, I'm sure I've talked to you before, Joseph, about my like theory and love for generous filmmaking, just the concept of of any movie that gives you that little bit more than they had to, you know, whether it be like a little wink, um, you know, movies that put something, sometimes they'll put something in the subtitles that like interact with the movie. And I'm like, you didn't have to do that. That's amazing. Like, I think anime of this quality is incredibly generous filmmaking because of how much detail is there and how many things are in the background that they just didn't have to put it there there was no reason they had to have that much dimension going on but they did because they love it and they care about it and that's yeah it's beautiful well it sounds like we're getting close to wrapping it up but there is the speaking of marvel movies the stinger on this thing oh god it's yeah but (laughs) twisting twisted <laughs> what do we make of the the very very final images of the boy on the moon uh at the end of this movie this is where you guys got to give me some like myth mythological understanding of where we are because i don't understand this lilith stuff i don't understand what's going on what the like higher level fights are to me right the fact that he was they were mm-hmm. like all right so we just kept throwing angels at you but we just got started that was just like <laughs> mind-boggling to me so please as a fan it's like wild to me that like it's funny because like my critique in the show when we got to Kaoru is like Kaoru is so rushed why don't we get him earlier and then in the movie they give me Kaoru earlier and I'm like no it messes with everything you fucked the dynamics up by introducing him so early it's very weird I very weird (laughs) with and like with the row of boxes Mm -hmm. right like there's more of him and he's just like the one version that's like come alive at that moment in time is like implied in the show but like seeing it surreally like that is like oh my god fuck it to me there was a theory going around at the time of this movie's release 
that this movie actually takes place after the show and that it's not a reboot, but it's rather like the next cycle through this storyline that like history repeats itself kind of like that. It was like a fan theory that I saw a lot around the time of its release. And that's still going. What was that? That that theory is not like just around this. That's still that's ongoing. Yes, that 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 is true. That is like a way that you can watch all these rebuild movies that I don't know if I a hundred percent agree with. Like I agree with parts of that idea, but not all of them. But that final sequence does a lot to lend credence to that argument because it's right. on the moon, which is a really striking image from the end of Evangelion film that wrapped up the TV show the moon does have the stroke of blood on it. Doesn't it? That's from end of Eva. (laughs) Like there's all of this stuff that's suggesting that this is taking place after events that fans of the show have already seen, which is really disconcerting and kind of like sends your minds, your brain into like a million different directions. If you know what you're looking at, but it is, it, it is absent of that context. It feels well, actually, I guess kind of in its own way, it feels like a Marvel movie because it's like fans of the comics can like see a lot of those stingers and be like, oh, that's referencing like these comics. I know what these characters like. It, it's all these like Easter eggs for like the hardcore fans. And this sequence does feel a lot like that for me for good and ill. Yeah. Not to underline the the Marvel thing too much because I'm actually not convinced that it's the best parallel right but that that moment in particular is the like the end of 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 avengers 2 right that's that's like the thanos reaching and grabbing the infinity gauntlet and going like fine i'll do it myself right like it, right. And that that sets up like the gambit that was like the rest of that series right and so like kaoru waking up does seem like the first big moment where we're taking a break from like the shot for shot plus or minus rebootness of, of the series and him being like, no, no curveballs. I have mm. curveballs. I've got, I've got curveballs lined up. You're I'm going to fuck with you. It's coming. And that's something that like the next movie in particular, I think goes out of its own way to do quite a bit is throw as many breaking balls down the lane as it can for, and again, for better and for worse. Right. Do we have any other closing thoughts we want to hit before uh, before moving on? I did want to say, and I don't know if we have time for this. I could do it like off mic with Logan, maybe. I don't know if this is like the place for this or not, but I did. And this and this might be the come down from last night talking. Um, <laughs> but when I was watching this movie, I had this weird point where like in the course of the podcast, I've, I was making a concerted effort to try and figure out the metaphysics. To, to try and figure out like the right hand path magic shit and why shit goes down the way it does. And on this rewatch with, with Ian of this series, I thought I got to 90%. I was like, I get 90% of the metaphysics. I'm figuring it out. And watching this film almost up until the end, I was like, I've got it. I'm, I'm at a hundred. I've the pieces all fit. I I've gleaned the madman's machine. I understand. And then you get to the end and it's like, nope, that's not, 
did you explain finally the way the series works to me just to break it again? Which does seem like a thing that this property would do for mm-hmm. fun. I mean, isn't that a, a common... Oh, no, it's just like such a common theme to me in in epic storytelling, right? Like you get to a point where the beats become like the you know the hero and the villain fight and like eventually they learn each other's skills and then it it does get old because you're like okay if i do this that kills them and i mean this this kept my interest the whole time in terms of the the battle scenes but eventually i was wondering how do you make three more movies with this being the setup because you can't just be like well there's another alien uh, angel here we go let's go you know like it can't be the exact same beats every time so i Mm -hmm. kind of i recognize the need narratively to throw in a few wrenches and be like, no, we're going to have to, we're going to have to twist it up and have some, some other kind of baddie, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I Uh, think tons of acid is the answer to your question. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you keep doing weird shit? Tons of hallucinogens. (laughs) (laughs) There are wrenches within wrenches that are going to get thrown at this story in the next rebuild movies. Mm. I guess like my, my last question would be like, what would you want to have? Like, where would you want this story to go for rebuild two? If, this is your only introduction to the story. I think, and and a lot of this is based on what you were saying before about how this took into account how many more people were involved, you know, in, in making this happen. I do want it to become a little more ensemble. I want more of that. I want to understand more characters' strengths and maybe more of those B-level characters' roles in this in this kind of ultimate mission. I think that would be fascinating. There's the third lead. There's like a third lead character oh, that good. like has, that they is not even in this movie. My favorite character isn't in this movie. Fantastic. <laughs> but she's better in the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, it sounds like there is some more fan service coming down the pipeline. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs> Man, thank you guys thank for you having so me. This is fun. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.